0: Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, head of the Department of Languages and Linguistics at La Trobe University. This is episode CLXXVI, the Apology of Apuleius. When Apuleius married his friend's mother, little did he realise that it would lead to a charge of sorcery with a raft of seemingly innocent actions from buying a mirror to writing pretty bad poetry, brought up in front of the courts to prove his wicked intentions. Unfortunately for his accusers, Apuleius was a skilled orator, educated in the art of philosophy and highly skilled at slandering his enemies. Here's Rihanna Evans.
1: Apuleius was a, a Latin writer from North Africa. He lived in the second century, so, high empire, I guess we think of him Mm. born in the reign of Hadrian.
0: I'm I'm actually thinking good old days. (laughs) Sorry, given that. In
1: in terms of where you are with emperors (laughs) now, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) During the time of the good emperors, yeah, Uh, which makes him a really interesting insight into Latin culture, you could say Greco-Roman culture, because as we'll see, he's very proud of knowing so much about Greek culture Mm. during that period and... I think it should be fairly obvious to people who listen to our podcast, but Roman culture is by no means situated solely in Rome or Italy Mm. by this period. Um, It's happening all over the Mediterranean world and beyond. And Apuleius is a good example of the cultural hub of North Africa that exists during this period.
0: Okay. And uh, what is he known for? What's the... The draw card of Apuleius' back catalogue.
1: If anyone's heard of him, then it'll probably be for his novel, which goes by two different names. It's sometimes called The Golden Ass. Yes. And that's A-double-S, as in donkey. Yeah. Not quite the same thing as donkey, is it, I think, <laughs> technically. Or sometimes called Metamorphoses, which is confusing because of the poem by Ovid called The Metamorphoses. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing.
0: But it's basically referring to the same concept of... Change. Person turning into something. Yeah. Yeah. There's
1: there's only one major change in the novel, Mm. and that is that the main character, Lucius, is turned into a donkey or an ass, Um, (laughs) not that far into the novel. And it's about his adventures, sometimes really quite tragic and brutal.
0: Not a Disney story kind of thing. No, no. No, No,
1: they would have to censor heavily. (laughs) Although I do await that. I've never thought of that. What, a Disney Disney adaptation? the, The Golden Ass. Yeah. It's sometimes thought of, interestingly, as a kind of covert way, a kind of analogy of uh, the life of a slave, Mm -hmm. because, of course, he's a beast of burden, quite literally, actually sold as a sex slave at one point. Is this a spoiler?
0: It's not for me because I know the story. Okay. So I don't know. Your, your, People your want to read vary. the novel.
1: I mean, you know, it is 1800 years old. Yeah. So catch up, <laughs> guys. In the last book, the very famous last book, if you're a, a Roman literary person, he becomes a follower of Isis and through that is turned back into a man. mm very strange novel. It's what we would call now picaresque. It's these adventures, a bit like Don Quixote or the novel Tom Jones. You, yeah. know. you travel around, you meet different people, you get tricked or deceived or sold or whatever. And then at the end, it becomes very religious and, and sacred in tone. It mm. doesn't need to fit with the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But it's a much studied text Someone I know did once go to a conference that was, I think, at least a three day conference entirely on the prologue.
0: Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Just on that. So, kind of intriguing one yep. and, okay.
1: and a lot to pick apart because it's so complicated, but fun as well. Yeah. You can read it as a fun novel, although, as I say, bearing in mind.
0: Very dark, fun novel. Very
1: dark at times.
0: All right. This isn't a podcast about that. No, Not, but, but, but I feel
1: like we should do one now. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, that's one of the very few. Uh, works of roman fiction that we have which is just you know interesting on that kind of front as well because it's a full we can call it a novel yeah yeah absolutely Um, also the most (laughs) famous adaptation of that is probably pinocchio
1: i guess yeah go with it he gets turned
0: into a donkey he has his hijinks at the end he becomes a real boy
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I'd never thought of that, but I think you might be right.
0: I am right. (laughs) Also an Italian story, actually, Pinocchio. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Off we go. Apuleius, why are we talking about Apuleius? What's the interesting thing that we've got, which isn't a work of fiction?
1: No, we're going to talk about another work of his called The Apology, Mm. which uh, doesn't mean he's saying he's sorry. You know, people who've read Plato might have read The Apology, which is the defence speech of Mm. Socrates. So it's a defence speech. Maybe I should have explained with the novel that the character Lucius gets turned into a donkey by magic. So there is some overlap with this defense speech because Apuleius himself apparently was charged with having used sorcery Mm. in order to bewitch the woman who marries him. So part of this is about magic and sorcery. But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is a legal charge and it's about inheritance and the other members of her family. There's a sort of soapiness of this, you know, soap opera element.
0: It's a very interesting trial. What's the background of it? What was he put on trial for? You you mentioned, uh, I've got here, put on trial involving love, sex, magic and murder.
1: Isn't that an album title? It's
0: it's a HBO special, I'm sure. (laughs) We know about all of this because of the defence that he published.
1: All we know about it is his defense speech, the apology. So Mm. we don't have the prosecution. We have to infer from what Apuleius is refuting, what he's been charged with and what the prosecution has said. There are also certain points that are sometimes tantalizing where he'll say something like, and now I want my wife's letter to be read. And it just says... Pudentilla's letter is read out, and we don't have the letter, so oh, there are gaps really? there. Okay, <laughs> so
0: this is really just his his point of view, and and what was the gist of the charges that were brought against him? What's the background?
1: He has married a wealthy woman who is called Emilia Pudentilla, which, by the way, means very modest. Her name means that's good. <laughs> yeah, she's a widow with two sons. He
0: is friends with one of the sons.
1: He claims that he got to know her through being friends with Pudentilla's sons, and that the son was actively encouraging him to marry his mother. Mm -hmm. But that at some point, the rest of the family, who involves the son's uncle, so his dead father's brother, Mm -hmm. it gets very complicated family tree-wise, and the son's wife's father, so the son's father-in-law, persuade him that this is actually a very bad idea, because possibly it's going to do him out of some of his inheritance. Yeah. But it's more like they're after it. They're fortune hunters themselves. So they persuade him that actually Apuleius has managed to get Pudentilla's interest through magic, because why else would she be interested? He's not particularly wealthy. He's a little younger, although the age difference is unclear. And Apuleius says they've added on years to her age to make it look much bigger
0: they aged her up
1: they aged her up he (laughs) quite near the end of the speech he says you know you claim she's she's 60 and then he does all these complicated things with numbers i think you've added on five and then you've added another and then you've and he's talking about symbols that they must have used with their fingers for age Mm. did you mean 30 actually and he claims in the end that she's 40 okay and therefore you know might still have children and it's implied is a risk because that will divide up her fortune yeah so that's really at the basis of it. It's about her money, her wealth, how much dowry has been given, which apuleius says they've ex- exaggerated. And they sort of start to spread rumors that, that she has said she would never remarry. For people who know their Latin literature, it sounds like Dido in the Aeneid. Dido, the Carthaginian queen. Mm-hmm. This is... this is set in North Africa, she has sworn she'll never marry and the reason that she falls in love with Aeneas is she's shot with an arrow of of Cupid. It's not exactly made explicit, but that's going on in the background, I think. So they're implying that she would never go back on that, so clearly Apuleius has done something nefarious to Mm. bring her to this.
0: And as a foreigner, he's just assumed slash accused of being a wizard, essentially, and of using magic to seduce her.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's... He's Numidian. Mm-hmm. He's known as Apuleius of Madauros. He's traveled all around the Roman world. And he's currently in Libya at a place called Oya. This is where Pudentilla lives. And this is where he's charged. Mm-hmm. So he, I guess as an out-of-towner, he's he's at a disadvantage. But he's a Roman citizen. Yeah. And he's going to make it very clear to us that he's a highly educated Roman citizen. Oh, is he? Yes. <laughs> one of the things he's known for is his oratory. Yeah. And, you know... Why take on somebody who's so experienced at speech-making?
0: The text that we've got, the apology, is uh, very much tidied up, isn't it? I get the impression that what he would have said during his offence isn't word for word what we've got.
1: Yeah, I don't think that ancient Romans would have thought this was weird. By Romans, I mean the, the larger Roman world now. Although it has to be said, this is the only forensic speech we have, I think the only one, but certainly the oldest one from the imperial period, mm. which is kind of incredible if you think about it, because we're talking about the 150s CE. So we've had, you know, the empire dated, say, to 27 BCE. We've got nothing surviving in all that time. Yeah, yeah. So really, I guess we're, we're going back to thinking about, say, the speeches of Cicero, Yeah,
0: that's the first thing that came to mind. Yeah,
1: his speeches are almost certainly tidied up for publication. Yeah. So this is the norm. So it probably happened with Apuleius as well, even though we're talking about a much, much later period. Mm -hmm. And he does deliberately publish it. So why wouldn't he take the opportunity to make him sound even more rhetorically talented?
0: (laughs) So what would a trial have looked like? He would have been brought up in front of a local magistrate and charges would have been laid. And what's their justification of bringing him to trial?
1: The law under which they accuse him is called the Lakes Cornelia. And that Cornelia bit comes from the name of Cornelius Sulla. Mm-hmm. So It goes back to the time of Sulla. So quite an old law by this point. Yeah, okay, okay. We're talking 80s BCE. This is a law against using sorcery in a way that does damage to other people.
0: Sounds like it would have been very hard law to prove.
1: It is kind of a a very loose law in terms of how do you prove that someone used magic rather than it happened naturally. And Apuleius says this is why they've chosen it. Because he says initially they also wanted to charge him with the death of one of the sons, the younger son Mm. of Pudentilla. But they've had to drop it. He calls it his mendacious accusation. And they select instead, he says, the charge of magic And he glosses that as a charge with which it is easy to create a prejudice against the accused, but which it is hard to prove. So it's hard for him to defend himself, Mm. to just say, look, I didn't do it. Of course, he would say that. But it's a vague enough law for them to say, and we'll see what kind of things they say. Look, he bought that product. He probably used that in magic. Yeah. Um, Look, he happened to be there on a particular day obviously he was doing magic there. It becomes circumstantial, I guess we would say. He just has to have been around the right places and with the right things in his toolbox, and they can say it was magic. And a lot of their accusation comes from the fact that he's very poor and therefore had motivation. Mm -hmm. And he spends a long time at the beginning talking about how he's a philosopher. He's a Neoplatonist. So he quotes Plato a lot. Talking about how poverty is pure and because he's a philosopher, he's not seeking money. He's not interested in that. It means nothing to him. Mm. What are they thinking? Clearly, they don't know him if they think he'd care about money.
0: So it sounds like it's on the accused to prove their innocence.
1: Apuleius' strategy here seems to be to say everything that they're doing, all the products they're associating me with, because there is a lot about that and it involves, look out for it, toothpaste and fish he's saying, well, it's very natural. So he's kind of trying to take the wind out of their sails Mm. in terms of their circumstantial evidence. And nobody, and he quotes a lot of philosophers there, would ever associate this thing with magic.
0: Okay. The first thing that I've got here on note is uh, him talking quite excessively about his hair.
1: Yes, he talks a lot about his hair. Struck me as very weird the first time I read it. <laughs> Just the
0: first time. <laughs>
1: yeah. He talks a lot about appearance. And so, uh, if we get time, I'll read out some choice quotes about how hideous he says his opponents are. Yeah. He actually styles himself as being of commonplace appearance. Mm. But he says, but continued literary labor has swept away such charm as my person ever possessed has reduced me to a lean habit of body, sucked away from the freshness of life. It's destroyed my complexion and impaired my vigour. So this is what academia does for you, apparently, (laughs) uh, being a philosopher. And the reason he's doing that is, one thing is he doesn't want them to say that his looks swept pudentilla away.
0: Yes. Even my hair, though by a patent lie, they said that I let it grow in order to make my looks seductive. You see how charming and coiffed it is, it sticks up in tangles and knots, it resembles mattress stuffing, it is unevenly matted, <laughs> coiled and tufted, and has become totally inextricable through my neglecting even to untangle and straighten, let alone comb it. So he's not trying to seduce her with his good looks.
1: He's not trying to say he's good looking, He's he looks very ordinary. Mm. I'd actually highlighted that bit in my text as well. You're using a much older text, it uh, <laughs> uses some amazing language there. So they say that he's grown his hair to make him look more attractive. He says it's just a tangled mess. I think a lot of us can relate to this at the end of Melbourne's longest lockdown ever. (laughs) (laughs) I guess this is partly about his youth that they're saying he used to seduce Pudentilla. And And he's saying, look, I'm a philosopher. I don't don't care about riches. I don't care about appearance. I'm a man of substance rather than caring about these surface things they care about. At the same time, he likes to have a go at how ugly... And particularly how uncouth his opponents are. He says at one point of Aemilianus, so the main guy who's prosecuting him, his wife's brother-in-law, the brother of his wife's dead husband, he says, your face is hideous enough for a tragic mask of Thaestes. You know, those masks that they wear on stage? Yeah, I was about to say, are they the the theater masks? Yeah, Yeah. really exaggerated. Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, always got like devil horns and grotesque kind of expressions.
1: You would assuredly in your desire for the acquisition of knowledge look into the glass and sometimes leave your plough to marvel at the numberless furrows with which wrinkles have scored your face. Mm. He kind of has it both ways, as you can do, I guess, if you're a clever orator, to say, well, I'm not bothered about appearance, but you lot are really ugly.
0: (laughs) He also uh, uses it as an opportunity to showcase his poetry. And I I do kind of wonder if he would have done this in front of the magistrate and used the chance to kind of do some, some, essentially some slam poetry, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I particularly like the one about toothpaste. dental hygiene and toothpaste. Do you want to, do you want to read that one out? Because you've got a better translation by the sounds of it.
1: The toothpaste argument, which comes early on in the speech, seems to be that whatever substance he has for cleaning his teeth is something he could have used in a magic spell or, you know, a potion. Mm. It's kind of implied that he's given Pudentilla a love potion. And he says he's very concerned about his dental hygiene. He's even written a poem about it. And then he quotes the poem. Yes. Now, I do have a slightly more modern translation than you, but it is still, as was the habit of a lot of older translations, it makes it into rhyming couplets.
0: Oh, good, because this one doesn't rhyme, so. Well, the original wouldn't have done.
1: wouldn't have done. But anyway, bear with me while I go through these bad rhymes. Good morrow, my friend Calpurnianus, take the salutations these swift verses make. Wherewith I send, responsive to thy call, a powder rare to cleanse thy teeth withal. This delicate dust of Arab spices fine, with ivory sheen shall make thy mouth to shine. Shall smooth the swollen gums and sweep away the relics of the feast of yesterday. So shall no foulness, no dark smirch be seen, if laughter show thy teeth, their lips between.
0: I think that does him a disservice, that sorry, translation, sorry. Oh,
1: you think yours is better? You want to do yours instead? It,
0: it, it doesn't rhyme, but it seems to be a lot more straightforward. Ah, okay. <laughs> I say hello, Calpurnianus. With these hasty lines, I've sent you something to clean your teeth to brighten your smile with Arabian spices. It's a fine whitening excellent powder guaranteed to shrink swollen gums to brush away yesterday's leftovers so that no ugly stain of dirt appears if you chance to laugh with opened lips. I ask you, what is shameful about these lines, either in subject or language, Is there anything about them that a philosopher would not wish to be thought his? Unless, perhaps, I am to be faulted for sending Calpurnianus, a powder made from Arabian spices, when it should have been more fitting for him to observe that disgusting custom of the Spaniards. They, in Catullus's words, use their own urine to scrape their teeth and reddish gums. Mic drop.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I mean he's referring to a much better poem <laughs> which I think might be his mistake if you knew the Catullus poem which is Catullus 13 from Memory. I mean it's nasty, it's racist. Sounds it. It actually doesn't give you the urine bit right until the end. It just says this man Ignatius is he's always smiling. He's mm. smiling everywhere. He's showing his teeth. He loves to show his teeth. Wherever he's at dinner, he's out in the forum, wherever he is. And look, he's not he's not actually an Umbrian or somebody from somewhere respectable. He's from Spain, yeah. and he brushes his teeth with urine. That's how he gets that bright, shining smile. <laughs> it's unacceptably racist in its attitudes, but it is a better poem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is only just you know, one of a number of poems that Apuleius reads out during his defence. There yeah. is a lot of poetry.
1: There's a lot of poetry. There's an awful lot of referencing and quoting philosophers. Mm. Like, this is... Very much. I've said it before, but I can't stress it too much. Him showing that he's cultured, intelligent. Part of that is this strong attempt to show that he's dedicated to his philosophy and therefore that makes him reliable, that there's somebody who will not be concerned with with ordinary mundane stuff like money. Yeah. But also it's to show how much more he knows than his opponents. So at one point he says to them, Oh, you know, you could have read that letter, but, oh, you don't read Greek, do you? Ah. <laughs> so you didn't know about that. Yeah. So it just kind of points here for me. You don't even read Greek. And that he talks about how the sun had been swept into the ambit of these relatives. And he, he doesn't even speak Latin. He's speaking Punic. He's speaking Carthaginian which is interesting because there's this real cultural superiority going on there about the native language versus Latin. And he's showing, you know, I, I can read Punic, but I can also read Greek and Latin. I'm a man of culture. And he cannot stress that too much. He's such a snob. <laughs> but he's also quite funny at times.
0: Well, after what I just read out, and uh, in which he makes reference to Catalus and the reddish guns, he essentially points out that you guys are laughing and having a a good time at what I've just, you know, said. He he pauses for effect, essentially, and turns to the audience for his reaction. Him writing poetry is one of the charges, isn't it? I'd want to charge him for bad poetry.
1: It might just be bad translation. (laughs) Let's (laughs) try and give him the benefit of the doubt. No, it's not great poetry. It's not what he's known for. Without the prosecution, it's hard to say, but I think that this is part of a kind of, a way of getting the judge to be prejudiced against him. Yeah. I think, oh, he's a poet. He writes that frivolous erotic poetry too. And Apuleius uses the excuse that poets have tried to use throughout time, which is, well, lots of very high-minded and really important people have written what might be frivolous erotic poetry. It doesn't mean anything about their character. Mm. I'm a philosopher. And again, I've got a lot of substance. They also say he uses false names in his erotic poetry. Therefore, he's deceitful. They must have said that because that leads to one of the most famous parts of Apuleius's Apology. And the reason I'd heard of it before I'd read any Apuleius, which is when you read Roman love elegy, they give you this chapter of Apuleius to read because he says in there, look, Catullus did that. He wrote the name Lesbia when he actually meant Clodia. Mm. And he goes through those poets. You know, Propertius wrote Cynthia. So he talks about the pseudonyms, and that's how we know that these poets were using pseudonyms. It's quoted often because people tend to study that poetry more than they study Apuleius, at least mm. in the past. Yeah. So he was used as evidence for that. But he's using it as part of his defense. These great poets did that, so why shouldn't I?
0: Yeah, why is it any different to what I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the charges against Apuleius, as we said, are writing rude poems, attempting to purchase a certain kind of fish, sending an enslaved boy into a trance using magical chants. Next one is performing a sacrifice at night, owning a mirror, commissioning an ugly statue, I think is the gist of one of the charges, and marrying a rich woman despite being a poor foreigner.
1: Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> Apuleius takes all of them apart, doesn't he? And, and in the main, he says, yeah, everyone does this kind of thing. Buying fish mm. that has never been associated with magic. He takes that apart by saying, who associates magic with the sea and stuff that happens under the sea? Mm. It's much more about the land, you know, what you can get on land, products you can get on land. And in fact, he refers at one point back to the 12 tables, the original Roman law code from 450 BCE, which was specifically against enchanting land, which seems to be about getting crops to wither on your neighbor's land and and to rise up in yours. But also, why shouldn't someone buy fish? You know, you eat fish. That's what it's for. It's not for magic. He takes that apart. The stuff about sending a boy into a trance is interesting. I think it's implied here that this is a practice that's recognized, that you can derive prophecy from putting a boy, and it always seems to be a young boy, into a trance Mm. in some way. The way he refutes that is really quite nasty. He talks about how it should be the most beautiful boy or that they should be some kind of paragon. The boy they're charging him with doing this with is an ugly epileptic boy. And he talks a lot about epilepsy and how that condition would make it inappropriate to use him. Right, okay. And, you know, again, a lot of this feels would be very unacceptable to us. He regards epilepsy sort of sounds a little bit like a curse, you know, that it it makes you unable to operate and it it makes you unable to participate in life, but also inappropriate for this ceremony, I suppose you'd call it. Mm. So they've kind of picked a bad candidate. They've just associated him with this particular boy, but it's bad evidence from his point of view. It doesn't fit the paradigm of the way that this would work. When it comes to performing a sacrifice, he talks about how pious it is to perform these sacrifices to the gods. And at each stage, he tends to bring in philosophers and what they have to say about it. Philosophers approve of this. They think it's pious behavior. He implies that he's part of a mystery cult. He talks about sacrificing to Liber, who is Bacchus or Dionysus, Mm. and that if he isn't talking about it, that's because he's not meant to talk about those rituals a secret for those who are initiated so he's actually behaving correctly there
0: Mm. so it seems like he's got an answer for everything yeah an explanation i was about to say excuse but i've got mm, it's probably not the right word an answer for everything
1: and mirrors even philosophers owned mirrors yeah all right that doesn't mean you're obsessed with your appearance i get the feeling there's more going on with the mirror that there's more implications there about magic that you can do with a mirror the idea that it reflects something back at you, perhaps cultural connotations that we're not necessarily fully getting. Yeah. Again, he refutes it by saying these famous good people have also owned a mirror.
0: So pretty much all of these charges of magic that are levelled at him, he dismisses as mostly being either religious in nature or scientific in nature.
1: Yeah, religious or just everyday mundane. Yeah. Or things that a philosopher...
0: A learned man
1: like himself. Yeah, that they've also done. Okay. So Plato talks about this in this speech. It's kind of normal activity. Or Homer, he quotes Homer a lot as well. And sometimes he quotes Homer to say, there's a witch in Homer who does this. This is nothing like what I've been doing. So sometimes he uses his learning to kind of talk about the opposite as well.
0: What does he say in particular about the the charges, if you can even call it that, of marrying Pudentilla?
1: So he says that they're claiming she paid a large dowry to him. But actually, he says, if you bring the documents out, it's it's very small for a woman of her wealth. Mm. And that he sort of gives a very passionate account of how he begged her not to cut her sons off and to make sure that they were well taken care of in her will. And that she was becoming annoyed by their affiliation with their uncle and father-in-law of one of them with Herennius. But he was trying to keep the peace. So he kind of paints himself very much as somebody who is trying to retain the family and make sure that the the sons are well taken care of. Mm -hmm. Whereas, as he said all the way along, he's not interested in money. He's not interested in money. He's just interested in her. He's married her for love which is quite an unusual claim, I think, from antiquity, one that we might not expect, but it's certainly the claim that he makes. And he says there are documents that prove this. Bring me the will made by a mother whose son was now her enemy. They call me a burglar, and yet I dictated every word, mingling them with my pleas. Order that document unsealed, Maximus. So he's saying get her will and unseal it, which obviously yes. not meant to do until she's dead. Yeah. You will find she made her son her heir while leaving me some modest legacy as a mark of respect. So that if anything happened to her in the course of nature, I as her husband should not go unmentioned in my wife's will. So he's implying it would really look very suspicious if she cut me out completely. It wouldn't look good for her. It would be shameful for her to leave nothing to her husband. And so what she left me was just there to deal with that suspicion.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: I I think he's almost implying it would look like she was an adulteress if she didn't leave something to her husband. He doesn't say that, but there's some kind of shame lurking in the background which accounts for him being in the will at all. Mm -hmm. But the vast bulk of the property is going to the son. So he's using this as a way of making himself look pure and saying he was fully behind this. In fact, he's the one who ensured that the will was made like that. And so he says, what would be the point of me using magic? And he constantly says, he uses the whole idea about magic against his opponents. So here he says, if I was using magic, I'd have persuaded Prudentilla to leave leave me a lot of money. Yeah. Very near the beginning, he has said, if I'm capable of using magic, isn't it stupid of you to bring me to court? Shouldn't you be scared of me? Because I could do something to you. You know, I could mess you up right now with my sorcery. So... He's constantly undermining the idea that he has this magical power because Mm. it doesn't make sense in context. Why would people behave like this? Why would he be at their mercy if he had this great power of magic? Which sort of implies magic can do anything. You could take that apart as a specious argument. Like maybe he can do magic that's a love potion, but he can't do magic that just strikes someone down dead.
0: He uses a lot of exaggerated sarcasm. Yes. In his speech just every single sentence is, "Oh, fine then, I must be a magician." Ooh, you know, I can imagine him delivering it with that tone if he was in a schoolyard.
1: Can't yeah, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. I think there must have been a lot in the tone. I would love to have seen how he delivered it and the yeah. gestures he used. Yeah.
0: That she should promise me a modest dowry, not a large one. Fine spells I must have used.
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, this is one of my favorite ones about describing Aemilianus. Let his guilty tongue, the chosen servant of lies and bitter words, rot in the filth and ordure that it loves. Is it reasonable, wretch, that your tongue should be fresh and clean when your voice is foul and loathsome? I think that might be in relation to the toothpaste Toothpaste, argument. So he just lets rip at how disgusting he thinks these people are. I've read out the one about the tragic mask, which is along the same lines. Yes. I like this. This is not so much one about how awful uh, his enemies are, but it's kind of showing off his learning. This is about the circumstantial evidence, I guess. They say I sought my wife in marriage with the help of the black art and charms drawn from the sea at the very time when they acknowledge me to have been in the midmost mountains of Gaitulia. So
0: I, was I wasn't even Nowhere near the sea.
1: <laughs> then he says where I suppose Deucalion's deluge had made it possible to find fish. So what he's referring to there is this part of Greek myth, probably originally Near Eastern myth, that there had been a great flood, a bit like the biblical flood, And Deucalion and Pyrrha had survived it alone Mm. and had recreated the human race. But in the telling of this, actually in Ovid's Metamorphoses, one of the famous retellings of it, there are all these things about how eventually the flood got so high that you could sit on top of a mountain and fish. You have to know about that myth to understand what he's talking about. So that's part of what he's doing. So he's
0: giving you a backstory kind of homework. He's
1: showing off and he's also saying how ridiculous this is. We'd have to be in that extreme situation for this to have worked.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of his defence, I guess, that he he just kind of makes it sound so incredulous that he had anything to do with magic. Should I read his summation? Because I I think that's quite... Yeah. At any rate, in answer to what you have had alleged, as in putting aside all of the slagging and the poetry and the philosophy that I've spent going through for this entire work, count to see if two words are enough for my reply. You polish your teeth. Excusable cleanliness. You examine mirrors. Philosophic duty. You write poetry. Allowable activity. You study fish. Aristotelian doctrine. You consecrate wood. Platonic precept. You marry a wife, legal requirement. She was older than you, nothing unusual. You were after profit. Take the document, recall the gift, read the effing will.
1: No <laughs> <So laughs> effing. No effing.
0: <laughs> right, so he's got a, a two word. ...response except, to every charge except for the... Except the last except one, the where last he's, one.
1: he's got a nice little tricolon, which is a uh, three phrases <laughs> no, that no, seal the deal, I, really. I, I
0: ruined it with an F-bomb. <laughs> but, but, so, so he's got a, a short, concise response to every charge that's given to him, but he's going through them all in exhaustive detail. If I've sufficiently demolished all of these charges, if I've refuted all of their false accusations if after all their charges and likewise all their insults i am safe from the charge of magic if i have in no way lessened the dignity of philosophy which i value more than my own preservation but rather upheld it on all points with flying colors if this is so i repeat i can respect your judgment with more confidence than i fear your authority for a proconsul's guilty verdict is less grave or dreadful, I think, than the disapproval of a man so virtuous and so upright.
1: Yeah. um,
0: And then then he's got a, I rest my case. He says, I have finished. Sorry, off you go. (laughs)
1: Sorry, I mean to interrupt the I have finished. I should have mentioned earlier on that the judge in this process is a man called Maximus. Something that we haven't talked about is how much he butters him up. Every opportunity talking about how learned he is, how yeah. wise he is.
0: And of course, I don't need to explain this to you, Maximus, yeah. but for those of us listening at home, <laughs> it's...
1: <laughs> it's difficult to know exactly what normal practice was then. To us, it sounds like hyperbole. It sounds like the judge would kind of go, this is too much. Mm. You're you're trying to get round me. So he does it there at the end, but that has been his practice throughout the speech to drop in little bits of flattery. Mm-hmm. And as you say, a lot of it is about his learning. And he comes back to that at the end with philosophy, that it's not that I would be punished that I'm worried about. It's my reputation as a philosopher. It would be unbecoming. It wouldn't reflect my virtue. That's what I care about. I care about shame. I care about reputation. It all fits in with this idea that he's not interested in money. He's not interested in worldly things. He's only interested in living his life, to being true to the precepts that he's laid out for himself. Yeah. It's so clean and pure. <laughs> but he writes that naughty poetry too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, so uh, just as a, as a sidebar here, my the manuscript that I uh, was copying and pasting things from uh, had a postscript. Uh, I, Salustius, corrected it at Rome with good luck. So that's somebody making marginal footnotes by the sounds of it. Yeah. So the last note that we have on this text is Apuleius saying, I have finished, however you want to translate it. I've spoken. Yeah, I have spoken. I
1: like I have spoken more.
0: So we don't know the outcome to this trial. We assume that Maximus dismissed the charges.
1: We do. And I think it's rational. It's unlikely that Apuleius himself would have published this speech if it were unsuccessful. Mm. It's one he's proud of. You can tell he's kind of pleased with himself throughout this, can't you? Oh, definitely. For all he's telling you that he's living this humble life and he lives by his philosophical principles. And I think that he's pleased with himself here enough to publish it because it was successful. And I'm not surprised if the people he was speaking against are anything like he describes them, although I'm sure he's exaggerating. Mm. But they just did not have the privileges that he had, knowledge of presumably law as well as literature and philosophy. It's a very showy speech and it would impress. Its purpose is to impress, which is kind of the point of ancient oratory. All right. So in some ways, certainly from what we know of earlier law cases, it's as important to be persuasive. That's what rhetoric means. It's persuasive speech as to have the law on your side. So even though he goes through this and says, it makes no sense. I was nowhere near the sea. You know, it doesn't add up. It's as important that he presents this in a way that is persuasive and articulate and really draws the judge and everyone else who's watching in. Because even if they're not making the judgment, their reactions, I mean, sometimes he refers to their reactions within this speech. They're important. They're kind of part of the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. But these people who brought the charges against him, they accuse somebody who was a philosopher who is skilled at oratory. If they bought these charges of magic against a normal person who doesn't have those skills, it sounds like it would be a quite easy thing for a guilty plea to come to.
1: It's certainly plausible, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the fact that it is brought to court as a potential accusation, mm. as a plausible prosecution, which means that sometimes it must have worked.
0: Yeah, yeah. And when the charges can consist of things like you own a mirror, You bought this fish.
1: I mean, he is representing them as laughable. Yeah. All right. So presumably they were slightly more sophisticated than that in the prosecutor's mouth. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) He's reducing them to you went and bought some fish. Yeah. But presumably they talked about what he did with the fish, what he could have done with the mirror. These are things that are seen in that culture as associated with magic. Mm. And then he's making them sound much more everyday or associated with his philosophy. Or, you know, Plato says it's fine to have a wooden statue. Why would anyone have a problem with that? And by the way, I just want to highlight at the end here how strange it might seem in some ways that he is appealing to precedence. You know, law is kind of all about precedent. Looking to people like Plato who lived, what, 600 years before him, way before the Roman Empire existed, why that would have any bearing on what's happening in a Roman law court is something that we would question these days. But as I say, he's using that to build a picture of himself as having this immense culture. Mm, mm. And that is a big part of his defense. Why would somebody so well-spoken, so well-read do this kind of thing?
0: We should also, uh, in our summation, spare a thought for Prudentilla, who married this guy and, <laughs> I guess, has to put up with the philosophizing at home. <laughs> she would have been quite grateful to get him out for a day at the law courts, I guess.
1: <laughs> oh, maybe. I, and, you know, at one point he, he says that she's plain as well, yeah. which I think is trying to disclaim that he married her for her looks, but it's pretty nasty. Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad for her there. I guess he doesn't have anything to offer financially. She must have actually liked him. I hope she didn't regret it. But
0: It, it wasn't for his love poetry, I'm sure. He's,
1: he's very wordy. In antiquity, I th- there was a, a stereotype of women being overly talkative, mm. and I don't think that would have been true in their household. <laughs> she wouldn't be able to get a word in edgeways.
0: <laughs> That's Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Head of the Department of Languages and Linguistics at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Please leave a review; they are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both of us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Doctor Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until the next episode, I am Matt Smith, your teeth look fantastic, and thanks for listening.